Well, this is the third week of a new series we're calling Quotable Jesus, and it's about some of the most famous quotes from one of the most quoted persons in history. And this week, we're talking about loving your enemies. In many ways, this, uh, this is one of the most popular sayings of Jesus, although it's, as you soon find out, more challenging than you might imagine. Uh, the reason why it's so popular is in part because we think about enemy in the abstract, and it sounds like such a great idea. Why don't we just forgive our enemies and not let conflict just continue to grow? But... When we are faced with a real live enemy ourselves, it all of a sudden becomes a great deal more challenging. That's when we start looking for loopholes. You don't understand what he did to me. Or, surely I'm not supposed to love them. Do you know what they believe? Perhaps the first thought that runs through our mind when we hear the word enemies is to think on a kind of a global or national scale. We think of political enemies or national enemies. And certainly what Jesus says can be applied to groups. But primarily here, he's talking to individuals. It's the emphasis is personal. Love your enemy. Enemies come in all shapes and sizes. So over the years, I've heard people talk about challenges and difficulties they face, say with a former husband who has hurt them deeply and continues to cause them pain. Or maybe it's a high school classmate who's spreading gossip, maybe even not just in the hallways, but on social media. Or it's the person who broke into your home and ruined forever your sense of safety and security. Or the man who sexually assaulted you and made you lose and stole your innocence. The employer who made promises and then abruptly lays you off. Or the lawyer who tells outright lies in order to win a case. Or a relative who does something to drive a wedge between you and others in the family. And the list could go on and on. And then Jesus comes along and says, love your enemies. And we wonder, is he really serious? Isn't he asking a little much? Aren't there categories of people that we're excused from loving? So in order to understand what Jesus is looking at and what he's talking about, let's read the text. It's found in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36. He begins by saying, but to you who are listening. And by the way, the word listening here, he, what he meant by this is to hear and to obey. We sometimes think of listening as just taking it in, but it's actually to put this into practice. So he says, but to you who are listening, I say, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone gives you your coat or takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend from those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father in heaven is merciful with you. This is the word of the Lord. In listening to that, you can see why this idea of loving your enemies is a great deal more challenging than we might at first think. Before we look at what Jesus has to say, though, I think it's maybe helpful for us to define what an enemy is. And so a dictionary definition is just simply a person who is actively opposed or hostile to someone else. Although I think we can go a bit deeper and say that an enemy is a person who feels hatred for someone else. They spend a lot of time thinking up harmful plans and things they can do to antagonize the person that they see as their adversary. 
Now, this enemy thing can be one-sided. Someone can decide that they, are, uh, they want to make us their enemy or we can make someone else our enemy. Or it can be mutual, where both sides believe the other is their enemy. So how do you know you have an enemy? And perhaps the most extreme and maybe the simplest way to say it is that it's someone that you hate. Now, most of us won't readily admit that we hate anyone, but sometimes we're honest enough to know that we're, what we're feeling borders on hate. Sometimes the enemy thing, though, is subtler, and it may not be outright hatred, but it might be a grudge that we just are unwilling to let go of. It might show up as bitterness or malice or a feeling of resentment against someone for something they've done, real or imagined. Or again, it may be someone resenting us or we resent them. Either way, there's an enemy out there, and Jesus is telling us to love them. In reflecting on this the last couple of weeks, I've concluded that we often have such a dramatic definition of what it means to be an enemy that we overlook some of the more subtler ways that we create enemies in our own lives. Um, and so here are a few diagnostic questions I think we ought to ask of ourselves. For example, is there someone you can't stand to be in the same room with? Or are you secretly blaming another person for something that happened to you? Are you nursing a grudge and secretly think to yourselves, I could never forgive them for what they've done? And I've heard people say that. Do you find yourself doing things to provoke someone? Do you find yourself talking about someone behind their back? Do you daydream about something happening to someone else? Maybe not death, but something else. Are you keeping a scorecard of everything that person has done wrong? So what does this look like? Well, my middle school had an extreme version of that kind of old school gym teacher. His name was Nanny Duver. That was his nickname. His real name was Wilbur. I don't know why he thought Nanny was a better option to, to, to Wilbur, but, but he was mean, and I would say bordering on sadistic, and I'm not just exaggerating. I think it was true. He loved to humiliate the least athletic students in the class. He'd been a Marine in World War II and treated all of us like a bunch of fresh recruits, although we were 12-year-olds. He had teacher's pets. They were the boys in class who had lots of athletic ability. The rest of us, he verbally abused. Now, I held some lofty uh, athletic uh, dreams when I entered seventh grade, but I had average ability, so I didn't end up falling into that little class of acolytes that he had in each class. And it was a painful experience. Three years of verbal abuse and crushed dreams. Years later, the sting of all of that still lingered, and I was in college when I saw a short article in my hometown newspaper uh, it said that this old gym coach had had a heart attack, but it said he was resting comfortably at home. And my first thought was not of relief, but of why didn't the old fart die? <laughs> now, I was at that point then overwhelmed by grief, realizing that this old gym teacher was an enemy and I needed to change my attitude. Luke tells us that Jesus starts by saying, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. What Jesus says is really the opposite of what many people today would have expected, and, and, and then as well. Instead, we say things like, I don't get mad, I get even, when Jesus says, do good to those who hate you. Instead of thinking of new ways to tear anyone, someone down, he says, bless those who curse you. And instead of seeking vengeance, he tells us to pray for those who mistreat us. And it starts, Jesus says, with love, love for your enemies. Now, let me just try to clear something up because we often have a mistaken idea of love. 
We think of love that flow, is something that flows out of emotion. But that's not what's going on here. Some of you know that the Greeks had many different words for love. They had a word for love that described family love, another the love between a man and a woman, and still another the love that friends have for one another. But the word Jesus used here is the Greek word agape. Agape isn't about feelings. So Jesus isn't telling us to love our enemies in the same way that we love our families, our spouse, or friends. Instead, he's talking about an act of the will, a self-giving sacrificial love. And it's the word that's used to describe what Jesus has done for us when he gave his life for us on the cross. That means that loving our enemies isn't about feelings at all. It's about what we do. In fact, loving our enemies may mean that we still don't like them, but we are willing to go and actively try to love them. Agape love is to take an interest in the well-being and welfare of someone else, no matter what they've done. So it's to let go of vengeful thoughts, of vindictive purposes, and it's to not retaliate for something someone does. And then Jesus gives three examples of how we can put this into practice. Do good, bless, and pray. And this is where it gets tough, because what's more difficult than trying to do good to someone who you believe hates you? Or blessing someone who's swearing at you. Or praying for someone who's trying to hurt you in a deliberately malicious way. It's tough, isn't it? But it can work. Now, outside of my old gym teacher, I don't think I've really had a kind of a really big enemy in my life. I've been around people who don't like me. I've been around folks who've said some hurtful things. But I know from talking to some of you that you have much more extreme examples of this. But that said, let me just say that that doesn't make us helpless. Many years ago, I had someone in my life who was making things difficult for me. Um, in fact, the conflict, I realized, was beginning to occupy too, way too much of my mental energy. And that was a clue I needed to do something, or this was just going to eat me alive. But there really wasn't much I could do. Well, there's much I could say. And I realized the only thing I could do is pray. Now, that person had a business. The business was struggling. They were in an industry that was in kind of a downturn. And I decided to pray that their business would thrive. And so I uh, began to pray each week for this person and for their business. About a month later, I heard, I think it was either second or third hand, that they had gotten a big contract. And then over the next few months, I heard that they got another and another. And, uh, you know, you may be skeptical whether or not my prayers had anything to do with their business success. Maybe it was just an uptick in the economy or the business industry was getting better. But what I also noticed that I do believe is an answer to prayer is that my attitude started to change toward that person. And I think also their attitude toward me changed as well. No matter what someone does to us, we should never allow ourselves to have any other desire than the highest good of someone else. We should go deliberately out of our way to be good and kind to them and pray for them and wish them well. Now, just a warning here, and that is to be careful and be aware of the, any signs that you have in an enemy, especially if you're responsible in some way for that. Bitterness and resentment are contagious. The enemy thing is like an infection. It will grow and consume you unless it is neutralized by love. Now, I want to show you a clip from a movie. The movie's called The Interpreter. Just to set a little context for it, uh, Nicole Kidman plays a UN interpreter in this clip, and Sean Penn plays a law enforcement personality. I want you just to look at this conversation. Everyone who loses somebody wants revenge on someone on God if they can't find anyone else. But in Africa, in Machopo, the coup believe that the only way 
to end grief is to save a life. If someone is murdered, a year of mourning ends with a ritual that we call the drowning mantra. There's an all-night party beside a river at dawn. The killer is put in a boat, he's taken out on the water, and he's dropped, he's bound so that he can't swim. The family of the dead then has to make a choice. They can let him drown, or they can swim out and save him. The coup believe that if the family lets the killer drown, they'll have justice but spend the rest of their lives in mourning. But if they save him, if they admit that life isn't always just, that very act can take away their sorrow. Vengeance is a lazy form of grief. Did you catch that last line? Vengeance is a lazy form of grief. Now, what Jesus does in this text next is to take several examples of how it is we can respond to an enemy who tries to take advantage of us. This is in verses 29 and 30. And this is where he memorably says that if someone hits you in the side of the face, just turn and let them hit you on the other side. And then he says, if someone takes your coat, let them take your shirt as well. If someone asks for a loan, give it to them, even if you're convinced you'll never see a dime of the money. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait a minute. Are you saying that Jesus is telling us just to let others walk all over us? If you're familiar with Jesus' teaching, you know that he often uses hyperbole. And this was a common teaching method in the ancient Near Eastern world, and it was used to drive home a point. Jesus didn't mean to be taken literally. However, if you start to think, whew, okay, now I'm off the hook, while Jesus is exaggerating, he is also serious. If someone harms us, our highest priority must not be to seek revenge. It must not be to get our money back at all costs. Instead, Jesus is asking us to lean in the direction of generosity and forgiveness. Above all, he wants us to love our enemies no matter what they might do to us. Now, there are limits. Otherwise, given the sinfulness of the human heart, it wouldn't be long before Christians found themselves repeatedly victimized and robbed blind. But the general posture of a Christian is to be love, forgiveness, and generosity, which means that when we see someone in need, we should be willing to put out a little of our surplus to help them. In short, we're to put the other person's interests and rights before our own. And then just to reinforce the point, Jesus points out a common human tendency. Verses 32 to 35, he points out how easy it is for us to love the lovable, those who are close to us. What Jesus is asking isn't natural. It's natural to love the lovable. It's natural to love those who can do good to us or have done good to us in the past. It's natural to lend money who can pay us back and pay us back with interest. But Jesus is asking something more, and that is to behave in a way that is selfless. And that is simply not natural. The love that we give to those near to us is something that we almost can't help. We have an expression. We talk about falling in love. That implies that we just even can't help it but love this other person. But the sort of love that Jesus is talking about isn't a love that comes out of emotion, but comes out of the will. This is especially true if the people God wants us to love have hurt us, people who hate us, people who want to do us harm. Or it may just simply be people we don't like. Or maybe we find their politics repugnant. Or they annoy us or make us uncomfortable. Or maybe it's just that they're needy and they repeatedly ask for our help. The sort of people who will never be able to pay us back. 
So do you see how truly countercultural it is what Jesus is saying? Because our default way of thinking is to think that relationships are reciprocal. If you scratch my back, I will scratch yours. So some today take that whole idea to an extreme and advocate for an idea they call rational self-interest. They say that the goal of life is to maximize our personal happiness. The philosopher and novelist Ayn Rand, who wrote books like Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead, went so far as to say that it is both irrational and immoral to act against anything other than self-interest. She even wrote a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. And Jesus couldn't disagree with that more. He advocates for an open-hearted, open-handed approach toward others, to seek the benefit of others, even at the expense of our own needs and desires. And we're to do this even if those that we're helping are less than deserving. At the very end, he says, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Now, before you dismiss Jesus as some kind of fuzzy-headed idealist and unrealistic person, we need to point out, again, that Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's not telling us to be doormats. He's not opening the door for vicious people to kick us in the teeth without any resistance. We have to distinguish, though, between a desire for personal revenge and social justice. We ought not lash out at each other, but neither are we to look um, the other way in the face of evil or injustice. We're to be advocates for justice, actively opposing evil in the world. But even as we stand up against evil, love needs to be the underlying emotion. It's the only way that we can break the cycle of hatred and violence that so gripped this world. Again, love needs to be that underlying motivation for all of this. Now, this might sound like a thankless job because sometimes we'll find ourselves in situations where we give and give and give and give some more. And then Jesus, in verse 35, caps this section off by saying, Then your reward will be great, and you will be called children of the Most High. Now, this may or may not be a reward we experience here on earth, but it will certainly come. Jesus has promised us that. So how do we sum all this up? How do we, how do we go from here? What do we do? Well, in some ways, it's pretty simple. Think of the best thing you can do for the worst person you know and do it. Or imagine the one person you'd like to tell off, but instead think of one thing you could say that might bless them. Think of the one person who's done something deliberately malicious and decide to pray for them. And think of someone you think is undeserving and find a way to be generous with them. And that might seem unfair, a way of letting people off the hook, a handout to people who do not deserve our help. Well, you might be right. Maybe they don't deserve it. But Jesus is asking us to imitate him. Loving our enemies is exactly what Jesus did. We must acknowledge that we are also in that category of undeserving people. The good things that God blesses us with are not things that we deserve. St. Paul put it this way, ultimately talking about what it is to have a relationship with God. And he said this in Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, and you could read that undeserving people, Christ died for us. In other words, God loved us when we were undeserving and Jesus tells us that undeserving love is what we ought to be giving toward others. The goal, as Paul said in Romans chapter 12, is to live in harmony with one another. He said in verse 18, if it's possible, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with everyone. 
And as much, he said, as we might desire revenge when we've been wronged, ultimately we're to leave things in God's hands. That doesn't mean that we won't act for justice in certain situations. But ultimately, justice needs to be placed in God's hands. And in the meantime, he tells us to do good to our enemies. Do not, he said, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Those are words I believe are inspired directly by these words of Jesus. Just a little over a week ago, I heard the story of a young woman who uh, met and fell in love with a man from a very different background from her. Uh, they got engaged, and she had no idea how to relate to her future mother-in-law. So she did something risky. She decided to invite her, not her own mother, but her mother-in-law, to go along with her to shop for a wedding dress. Up to then, she said her fiancé's mother had been polite but cold, but she realized she needed to do something to reach out to this woman who was going to be a part of her life. So hence the shopping trip. And it worked. It wasn't as though the two became best friends, but it broke open a place in this young woman's heart for her future mother-in-law, and it seemed to do the same in reverse to the, this older woman. For the next few years, she said, things went fairly well. She had twins. Her new mother-in-law was there to help out. But then something happened, something so hurtful and hard that it created a break in their relationship. In the end, her husband's mother told them that she could no longer be a part of this new family. And frankly, this daughter-in-law felt like, fine, if you're going to say that and do that, I'm out of here. But nine months passed, and the younger woman realized that the more time that went by, the more likely it was that they would never actually reconcile. So she took a risk, and she called her mother-in-law, and she told her that she missed her. And to her surprise, her mother-in-law said in return, I miss you too. They got together soon after, and for the next seven years, she became this young woman's second mother. When her mother-in-law was diagnosed with cancer, she was heartbroken. It had now been several years, as she told the story, since her mother-in-law was gone, but she said, I miss her every day. And she said, and this is important, she thinks about what she almost missed. She said, I would have been justified in keeping her out of my life. What she did was hurtful and cruel, but I realized that the relationship was more important than holding on to the hurt. Let's pray. Father, the words that Jesus has given us here are challenging words. They challenge us to go beyond the hurt and pain that we may have experienced and to love even our enemies. Father, help us to think of the best thing we can do for someone who we think may not be deserving of our, uh, of our good deed, to think of the person that we'd like to tell off and instead find a way to bless them, and to think of someone who may have done something very hurtful to us and to take an opportunity to pray for them. Father, may we do this not in our own power, but in yours, knowing that you can help us to reconcile with one another and let go of the hurts and truly love even our enemies. We pray this in Jesus' name.